What does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hackness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me on the show is Gabor Bittera, and we speak about Scrum and language and how to create curiosity in a group so that they want to follow through. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. And now, lean back to be inspired. Gabo, welcome to the show. Hey, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes. I'm looking forward to an exploration on storytelling and language and facilitation. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me here. Yeah. I always start with the same question. When did you start calling yourself a facilitator? And do you? Or, 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 or do I? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about this question because I knew that this is the one question that is definitely coming. And if I can look at, look at it two ways. If I'm a facilitator and that's my job that I do, is that I, I facilitate groups and people, then maybe I'm not. But, you know, if I'm looking at facilitation as an art of making something possible, not easy, possible, mm. because, you know, facilitation means to make something easy. I don't think I do make it easy for people. I, I make it possible for people. And from that perspective, I am a facilitator. Mm. But I don't think that as a job title, I would have that. Does it make sense? It makes absolutely sense. And I like the distinction between making it easy as opposed to making it possible. Because the easy way is not always the sticky way or the sustainable way. And if you're making it too easy, then you're not making the group responsible. It sounds and, as and if you, you not, would do the work for them. And you're not exploring all the options, I guess. Mm. I think, you know, there is a real difference between what's easy and what's simple. I think in facilitation, we should do the simple thing, but the simple is not always easy. Yes. As we will, I'm sure that we will, we will stumble upon this when we are recording this podcast of, you know, what is difficult about facilitation? The difficult part is making it simple. Yeah. And what does making it simple mean to you? I think for me, it is kind of, sometimes it's difficult to be simple mm -hmm. because your ego gets in the way. Mm. You want mm -hmm. to shine as a facilitator. You mm -hmm. want others. To, you want to be looked at as the go-to person in the room about facilitation and about this creating this environment. And sometimes, because of that, you do. You want to do too much. You want to cram all the flares of facilitation into an event or into a meeting, and that with that you are creating more hurdles for the people to jump through. Mm. And yes, that will make you shine because you want to do something very difficult. But that's not the right way to do it. Because, you know, these people are coming in, they don't know your tools. You will build on a lot of assumptions that, you know, people will, oh, they will understand. No, they won't. Because your framework that you want to use is overly complex or complicated. Mm. So just use simple stuff and that will probably reach its goals simple stuff with constraints 
because constraints is what makes it work, not the difficulty or the complexity of the framework that you're using. Mm, yeah. And I find the, the distinction between complicated and complex fascinating that as a facilitator, don't want to make it easy, but simple. What I hear is to reduce the complexity and not to go down the route of the complicated. I have the impression that organizations very often make it complicated, which is different from complexity. It's just too many rules, too many words, too many bureaucracy. Yes. But this yeah. complexity is human dynamics, being human in general, having wicked problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm coming from a scrum slash agile background, and I tend to talk a lot about what makes our work complex and what makes our work complicated. It's a tool called the Stacy Matrix. Some people on this podcast might have heard about this. He was a I think a, a university professor from the 60s, he was, a, he was a British guy. And he came up with the matrix that, you know, if the, there are two axes, the how and the what. Mm -hmm. The what is about the requirements, the how is about the technology that we are using. And if both are out of alignment and we do not agree on the how and we do not agree on the what, that's, that's complex work. Because we do not agree on the requirements and we do not agree on the tools, how we might get there. But complicated means that that we do not agree on the how, but we agree on the what. Or we do not agree on the what, but we agree on the how. This might be edited out because this might not be relevant. <laughs> and maybe it is. So how does it impact your work as a facilitator? So would you approach a complicated situation differently from a than a complex situation yes because in this matrix if we have a problem about the how about how we will do things yeah then it's a technical problem if we do not ha have agreement on the what we need to do what are the requirements then it's a business problem and the two sides of the table understand different language They speak different languages. Technical people that are writing code or are doing the work, they have different idea about certain words than management who are usually responsible for the requirements and the what we need to build. Yeah. And I think that's a fascinating field. And I remember that you have worked as a translator um, yes. in your previous life, if I may call it like that. Yeah, yeah. I have um, had several previous lives, like a cat. <laughs> nice. This makes us uh, interesting, right? And I would be curious what you have learned from this previous life about how to deal with this situation where you have diversity in the groups. They have to align and to come to a decision. And still they are speaking different languages, although they are speaking English, right? How yes. do you deal with that? Again, I guess simplicity is the key. The, the problem with language is that it has too many facets. It has too many layers. And, you know, sometimes people are lost in figurative language, which might make sense because they come with a baggage of culture and history and family and whatever baggage you have on your back. 
but that makes your context very rich. Mm-hmm. At the same time, that richness is difficult to come through in a conversation. Therefore, we need to somehow, in a, in a conversation like this, we need to strip away that baggage and go back to the basic language that that you know maybe people whose mother tongue is not English learn. We need to go back there. We need to use that 800 words that is the core corpus of the language. And yes, it will take away all the figures of speech that, you know, native speakers tend to tend to go into frequently. They go into rabbit holes, as we say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a figure of speech for you. But then what we might say, instead of running into rabbit hole, because that might not have the same sense for somebody else, yeah? We are just going to say that you are running into undesired complexity. Undesired complexity gives room for a lot of misunderstanding. Yes. So undesired for whom? For you, for me, for the organization, for the world? I guess for the other people in the room that are coming from a different context, from a different culture, from a different background, from a different language. And how do you enforce that? Because I can imagine that, especially in the context of an organization, there are different lingos. So you have this very typical language that you would use on an organizational level, but also on the team or team level. I can imagine that programmers, those who are in the software development, they use a different language than the management. And then you have the entire level of showing off, oh, by using certain language, we are showing that we have a certain status, a certain level of education. Last week, I recorded on language privilege, a podcast. So how do we enforce these rules and keep it easy for the group? Simple, the language simple to the group. Well, something that I do is I try to repeat the language that I would welcome. I try to reinforce the good examples somehow by repeating it and by trying to help encourage that and trying to help it flourish. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I, I like to do. But what resonated with me when you were speaking was that, was that you know, management has a different language. And we in our organizations, we are not, not thinking about it, but subconsciously we are using military language, you know, many times. We need to rally the troops. We are on the mission. We need to hit the target. I mean, where does this come from? And what does it have to do with our organizations? Mm. And I really do not like that language. We have a calling. Mm -hmm. I I would prefer this over a mission. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, sometimes we say, I am not in the business of this and that. How can we make it? people-friendly. How can we make it more approachable, I guess? That would be my mission to sort of establish this in an organization or, or you know, at least in the team I'm, I'm working in to make it more palatable, to make it human first, people first. Yeah. How can you do that? Again. Modeling? Modeling and turning up the behavior that I would like to see and, and try to tone down the ones that I don't by showing, again, modeling and showing what good looks like in my vocabulary. Yeah. And finding allies too. There might be some people who who might feel the same way as me. And then finding them, 
alignment, you know, finding alignment with them. And we too are doing this and we too are communicating like this. Yeah. And then let's see how that penetrates. And maybe also just calling it out. Oh, yeah. But that takes a lot of courage. And sometimes people on the floor do not have that. Mm. And I and I consider because, you know, unfortunately, in our world, we still have resourcing problems. Mm -hmm. And when people say resourcing problem, they do not mean that we need a printer. Uh, they mean that we need more people. And that's not a resourcing problem. That's a talent problem. Maybe that would be an even welcoming way to talk about this. Yeah. But many times in, in, in meetings that I'm sitting in, people are talking about resourcing when they mean people. And, you know, however hard I try to say, yeah, yeah, we need we need more people. We need more talent. We need to recruit some bright individuals. Yeah, yeah. I really feel that we have a resourcing problem. And I just, you know, how can you not get the cue that I'm trying to give you? But yeah. some people never never do. But I, hey, this is a battle that I'm not going to give up on. <laughs> so yeah. just... And maybe it's an accounting problem, actually. I think as long as in our accounting standards, people are a cost and not an asset, <laughs> there will remain. <laughs> okay, now you are shedding this problem in a different light because I never thought of that. That that might be the reason for this. That you know people are in the same cell as printers, office rental, and uh, computer prices and whatever you know. <laughs> basically, procurement. Yes, but we cannot write them off. Well, sometimes we do. Ah, oh, yeah, that was yeah. yeah. And I. Wonder because this is just one example on how to bridge the language gap between different units. And I think one reason why there are silos in organizations is because these silos have their subcultures and speak different languages. And um, I don't remember who it was. I had a podcast guest and they gave the example of the word value, that when you use the word value, depending on the person you're speaking to them might mean something totally different. Mm. When we speak to facilitators, usually it's my values. It has something to, to do with beliefs and to culture. When we speak to a programmer, they will think about the value, the, the code in a cell. Mm -hmm. And if we speak to an accountant, they will uh, think of the money value. Mm -hmm. So as a, As someone who works in an organization, as a scrum master who brings together different units of the organization, helps them to align to move projects forward, what would be your advice or recommendation to help translate and to avoid misunderstandings? Do not take the meaning of words for granted. Mm. You know, we need to check what we mean by value. Yeah, if a person from finance comes together with a person from engineering and a person from business, what does value mean? And hopefully it will come through the conversations that, you know, as we get into the context of this, we will figure out what you mean by value, what a, a, a programmer might 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 be mean by value. So do not take meanings for granted. And I think that's our job as facilitators to call it out when we hear fluffy language, mm -hmm. okay, when you say that word, what do you exactly mean? Yeah. 
And I, I, you know, when we because we were talking about value, value statements are like that. We value honesty and courage and uh, dialogues. And what does that mean? Value, it can be a, a very open and very arbitrary word. Yeah. So how are we going to fill that void that mm-hmm. the word is, is, is putting in the space? So, you know, the question is there, when you say openness, how does that look on the floor? Mm. What does that look like on the floor? When can I point my finger at an action and say, yes, when you do this, it feeds back up to the value that you were preaching. This is how they are connected. Yeah. What are the good examples of openness? And what are the stories that we can tell about openness? Mm-hmm. True, because openness and um, can mean something very different. And what are we open about? <laughs> Exactly. And or, how do we see openness? Open to? Yes. And how do we receive openness? So exactly. uh, open feedback, exactly. radical candor. And do we have the prerequisites to actually live that? Because to be open without respect, this can backfire very quickly. It will. Probably it will. So, you know, somehow I, I really feel that values sh- should support one another in an organization or in a team even. And we should see that when we overdo a value, how it is hurting some other values. And maybe Mm -hmm. those would be the boundaries. If I'm thinking about the five values of Scrum, uh, which is courage, openness, focus, respect, and commitment. If we are too courageous and we think that, oh, I can see this scope of work, I think we can take in more. And we can't hit it, then it hits our commitment because yeah. we are we, because of courage we are committing to more. But then, if we are not meeting that commitment, then we were just over courageous. Because I'm sure you have seen that some of the human traits are coming from the same root. On one side, on the flip side of the coin, you can be confident, mm-hmm. and on the other side, you can be stubborn, mm-hmm. and they are coming from the same root. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the same personality trait in you. But if you reflect it in a positive way, then you are confident and you ooze confidence. Mm-hmm. And if nobody can change your mind about something because you are so confident, yeah. then you are stubborn. stubborn. Or you are arrogant. If you're so confident yeah. that you're not taking anyone else into consideration, then you mm-hmm. can also be arrogant. And I like the example with the values to, yeah, to put them into the extremes and see what does it actually mean and where's then the boundary. Yes. Yeah. Where, where yeah. the and tensions hope- between two values that we don't want. Yes. Yeah. And this is how they, they, they are keeping each other in balance, I guess. I like that exercise. To see ways, how much can we increase it, and where is a good moment to stop to, mm-hmm. to draw because the boundaries? To, yeah, because it would go to the detriment of the other values. Yeah, interesting. Thank you. Okay. Very nice exercise. I, it's a good one. I frequently run it when I teach Scrum. Mm. What do you think? Do most people get wrong about Scrum? Oh, how much time do we have on this podcast? <laughs> as much as you want. I think one of the greatest misconceptions about Scrum is that, uh, oh my God, I really need to think about this because I really want to start with the largest possible misconception about Scrum. But the the one that, that is coming up right now is that 
we don't need to deliver at the end of a sprint something that is potentially shippable work mm. that can be delivered to the customer. Scrum doesn't work without that feedback loop. And in some organizations, in some scopes of work, that can't happen. And then people will blame Scrum on the lack of progress. Oh, Scrum doesn't work for us. Scrum is not good. Yeah, because you can't deliver every two weeks or every every month. You know, that's why that's a prerequisite. You are you are slashing down the wings of Scrum if you do not get frequent feedback. I think that's mm. the problem that some people will think that we can wrap waterfall work in two week sprints. We will deliver a value at the very end of it and we call it Scrum. Mm. I'm sorry, this is not Scrum. This is just wrapping waterfall into two week chunks. <laughs> That's not good enough because so, you are mm-hmm. you are slashing the wings of feedback that you can learn from. And then basically what happens is to to be over ambitious on the sprint. So to, to put too much expectations in the sprint that you then cannot deliver. And if you cannot deliver, there's nothing to give feedback about, if I understand you correctly. Mm-hmm. And then it it is not scrum. Yeah. So the way how it, it should work is that we do something very small first mm-hmm. and then put it out to the market or to the stakeholders and ask them to play with it. Even if it's, let's say, if we are doing an application, even if it's just a login window and you can you type in an email address and a password and you log in, that's what it knows at this point. At least it can do that. And then we ask feedback from the customer. Hey, what is the next largest problem that we need to solve? And go iteratively so that we reduce complexity. Because again, the complexity comes from not knowing what we exactly need to build and not knowing exactly how we are building it. That's where complexity comes from. Yeah. And I what I hear is again the the problem that often appears on the business side, in air quotes, of hurrying too quickly into, oh, we need it fast. We needed it yesterday. And there's some things you cannot speed up and just squeezing more in a two weeks or in a one week sprint doesn't make it better. Mm. And throwing more people at it will not solve the problem. Actually, it will make the problem larger. Is it the too many cooks are spoiling the soup problem or where does it come from? It comes from the number of communication lines in a team. So how do you know that it's a good number to work on a project? How do you? Well, Scrum advises for 10 people. Mm -hmm. It used to be between three and nine, and now it's 10. But the 10 includes all the accountabilities in Scrum, which means that potentially developers, people that are actually doing the work, maybe seven, seven, eight, nine. That's the sweet spot, because at that point... The number of communication lines is, I don't know how many, but it's still still a lot fewer than, you know, if we had like 10, 11, 12 people on a project. Yeah. If you Google lines of communication, you will have a beautiful picture about this. It will look like a mandala uh, when we have like 15 people in the team. It will be nearly circular. While if, if we have only three people in the team, you know, there are three communication lines. Okay, so by communication lines, you mean everyone speaks to everyone else? Yes. And this way of communication must still be effective and there must have something to talk about, right? So yeah. I'm just thinking of 
the situation where there are 20 people in copy to every email, which mm. for me has nothing to do with communication line, but covering your back. Yeah, but that's a different story. Yes. That's a different story. So I don't know how we are going to do this or how you are going to do this. I just looked up lines of communication and, and I'm I'm just sharing the screen for you. So if you have three people, you have three lines of communication. So you have, you have a, four people, six just, lines. Just a second for those who are only listening. So the three lines of communication basically then looks like triangle. And the four people with six lines is a box with an X. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a star. Oh, okay. So everyone is always connected to everyone else. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, the, and at 14 people, there are 91 possible lines of communication. And it, it really, as I said, it really looks like a mandala. Yeah. Uh, maybe you can, maybe you can a- attach a picture like this, uh, yes. to this podcast. Or the, uh, the listeners can go to YouTube and check the video. And I wonder, wouldn't this, even apply to any workshop that, so when we think of facilitation and um, the risk of over-inviting people, mm-hmm. so, oh, we want to be inclusive. So let's invite everyone who could possibly benefit from the workshop instead of any, everyone who could possibly contribute to the workshop. And then thinking about what's happening afterwards. I think having these lines of communication in mind that after a workshop, you want everyone to be in a conversation with each other to drive the outcomes. It might actually be a good way to dial down the number of participants. Exactly. Because if there are too many, too many participants, then uh, you have just navigated yourself into the passerby syndrome. When, you know, if somebody, if somebody collapses on the street, and it's a busy street in London, nobody's going to go there and help. Mm. If you collapse in a village and there are three people around, they will go and help you because nobody's looking at the other person to help. But in London, in the Oxford Circus, there are hundreds around you. It's not my problem. It's yeah. not my cup of tea. I don't need to contribute. And that happens in the in, in big groups as well. You you hear it oftentimes in like town hall Zoom calls. Okay, who wants to talk about this? Nobody will want to talk about if it's an 80-person Zoom call. Put people in breakout groups of, groups of four and they will immediately talk about yes. it and, and ask about, okay, uh, we have had like seven breakout rooms of four, okay, 28 people. What was some of the key learnings in that conversation? Yes, I think there are different layers there. One is, and there's a difference between the village situation and the city situation and the number of people. So I think it's daring to speak up in a large group. And online, we don't have the opportunity to double check with anyone who's sitting beside us, whether Mm -hmm. it's smart enough or reasonable to speak up. So, or, or you know, we can't check. We can't check the temperature in the room. Yeah. You know, if I if I feel that somebody is not upfront about something, you know, a, a person is saying something that I do not find true, and I say, hmm, I, I, I pull mm-hmm. a face like this. Yes, I can immediately check around whether I I, I can see anybody else pulling yeah. the same face or a similar yeah. face, and then if I do that, I might have the courage to actually raise my voice. But online, with uh, I always say muted cameras, which covers <laughs> muted cameras. Yes, 
You can't, you can't do that cross-check of, okay... Am I the only one who disagrees? Way. Yeah. Yes, exactly that. Yeah. And you are just sitting in your own silence and say, oh my God, this is not yeah. this is not how it is. Exactly. And that's why it's um, these breakout rooms, when asking a question into a space, these breakout rooms are so important. Also to create rapport. And I think it's a great opportunity for organizations to build bridges across silos because the zoom gods will decide who will be with whom anyway. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then I wonder, so they, you mentioned it will be different on Oxford circle as opposed to a village. And I even wonder whether it would be different on Oxford circle, just a smaller street in London, because there has been research that there is a kind of bystander effect. If there are a lot of people around, then it's easy to think, or oh, someone, I am in such a hurry, but there are so many people, someone else will take care mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. If there are fewer people, then there is a higher sense of responsibility for each. Mm -hmm. And then the likelihood of doing actually something and asking if you can help is higher. Yeah. And this applies to, to workshops and organizations. If it's exactly. too much of a group, oh, someone will pick up the task and do the work. Um, but if it's small, then um, we have each other's back and we see each other's responsibility mm -hmm. in doing the work. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. So, you know, the number that is working well for me is 12 to 16. That's where my number lies for facilitating groups. Mm. I, I tend I tend to want to be around 12. 12 yeah. is my stronger preference than 16. What happens beyond 16 and what happens under 12? So I like to I like to ask people to do small group work and in a small group work four people maybe in a in a small group that works well. Because then nobody can slack. Everybody needs to be engaged. Yes. If you have more than four people in a small group, let's say five or six, then there might be some participants that do not add value. They are just listening. And that's not always helpful because that doesn't help us mm -hmm. diverge enough. Yeah. If there are too few people in a smaller circle or in a small group, let's say two or three, then again, we can't diverge enough. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I really find, you know, two is just a pair. It's not just, but it is pair work, which yeah. which has its place. Yeah. But I would prefer, it just unlocks more creativity if there are four people in a small group. And then, the, you know, when we come back together in the plenary or the main main body, mm -hmm. main meeting, essentially, and we have, we need to listen to what each group was talking about. We can only focus on about three or four different groups and not five or six or ten. Yeah. By the time we go in the, in the round, we are exhausted if we have like 24 people, which means six groups of four. That's yeah. just too much. We can't contain it in the head. It doesn't fit. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a numbers game. Yeah. That's, that's why it. my sweet spot yeah. is definitely... Four, uh, 12 to 12 to 15 16 so dividable by four or three or three <laughs> that's yeah. another option and, and yeah. you know this is why i love 12 yeah <laughs> and by two i think because i as you said um the the pairs have their place and i think mm -hmm. especially i like to increase the group size also to take into account those who are maybe more introverted 
to build trust mm-hmm. in the beginning, just turn to your neighbor, have a small conversation to check in. Yeah. But then when it comes to doing the work, I realized that if there are only two, it's easy to get distracted and to do something else. So are you maybe one of them doesn't want to do the work or find something else more interesting? It's easy to just say, ah, let's do something else and to agree. If they're a third person, then the likelihood of sticking to the task is higher because then nobody mm-hmm. wants to be the person to say, ah, let's do something else. Mm-hmm. It's like two people agreeing to be accountable, um, accountability partners to go to the gym, for instance. And then it's so easy. Ah, shall we have coffee? Ah, let's have coffee instead. If they are three, the likelihood of really going to the gym is higher. Okay. I will take away this from this dialogue that we are having now, this conversation. Right? I mean, that I even um, experienced this in my private life. Mm. It is easier to sway another person, but it's difficult to sway two of them, I guess. Exactly. And usually when there's three, there's always this one person said, oh, come on, guys, let's do it. We passed. Ah. Mm. The good conscious of the group. Mm. Yeah. You know, as facilitators, I think we are, Jiminy, the crickets. Sometimes mm. we are the good conscious of the of the group. Interesting. And so how can it, wicked question, how can it be that we are the good conscious of the group and still provoke them? Yeah, maybe that's exactly the good conscious because it is the courage that we need in order to provoke them, to get them back on track and to get the best out of them, actually. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly that. We are just holding a frame for them and we are setting up the boundaries and we want to see certain behaviors like courage, like depth of exploration, like, you know, something yeah. out of that. And and we are just giving them a space to do just that. Yeah. But we need to keep them focused to do that because... We are driving for an outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They need to bo- be bought into that outcome. Yes. If they don't see it, then there mm-hmm. will be too many sidetracks. Mm-hmm. What is your number one facilitation challenge? Finding simplicity, I guess, in the way how I craft my invitation. Mm. That's, the, that's the toughest for me. I love talking. I love to shine. Yeah. I have my ego. <laughs> I have my ego and I and I can be an extrovert at times, but it is not about me. Yeah. And keeping myself in check so that I resort to simple language and I phrase my invitations in a simple way. Mm. In order to do that, I need to understand where I want to get to. I need to like peel the layers of the onion and find a core of where I want to get to and ask about the core rather than the outside layers. Mm-hmm. It's very tough. For me, phrasing a nice invitation, that's the biggest challenge. And I just spend long hours on crafting the right words, which are taken from this 800-word core library of the English language. And when you say invitation, is it the invitation for an activity, for the session, for the work? I think when you are using written language, 
when you write an email, when you write the invite, the mm-hmm. uh, mm. for, for, for mm-hmm. the for the session, you can be a bit more playful with words because if somebody doesn't get it or somebody wants to use a dictionary that's built into our computers these days, they can do that, and I can I can be a bit more maybe a bit bit more verbose and playful mm-hmm. in my language. But when it comes to me asking for people to do something at the workshop, giving instructions, that's when language plays a crucial role. Simple language plays cru- mm. a, a crucial role. That, you know, the instruction is simple to understand. It's not too long. Yeah. It has... It is, it, is, it is made up of short sentences that people can understand. And starts with a verb. Maybe, if possible, <laughs> yes. And it's, um, it's interesting what just crossed my mind is uh, where technology suddenly became our friend and reinforces this because I now started to make sure that the instructions, that I always put the instructions into the chat. Mm-hmm. Because I cannot expect everyone to listen all the time and to be switched on just because I decided to give instructions now for the next mm-hmm. step. So if I want my instructions to be readable and easily understandable in the chat, they have to be very short. And I usually start every part of the instruction with an emoji that would kind of be a visual clue for what they have to do. That's the second thing I'm taking away from this conversation now. Yay! <laughs> yes, you are making me a better facilitator. Ooh, what makes a good facilitator? What makes a good facilitator? Yeah, being able to hold the space, I guess. Mm. You know, again, getting the ego out, leaving the ego at the reception, I guess. Yeah, that that would be for me. That's what good facilitators do. It's not about the frameworks. It's not about the instructions. It's yes, okay, it is about the instructions, but then. Letting people figure it out themselves, not wanting to save them, mm, because oh yeah. you know you are you are you are then attached to the outcome of this. But you know there might not be an outcome. Yeah, and that's where it becomes tricky or complex, because in order to have clarity on where you want to guide them, and that's what you said, you need very clear understanding of where you want them to go in order to create the simplicity in the invitation. Exactly. And at the same time, you want to be open and not attached to the outcome. Mm -hmm. You want to be challenging and you want to create constraints for them because constraints just ignite creativity and Mm -hmm. creative thinking. But how can you create a space where this constraint happens you invite them into this constraint in a simple way. The constraint is visible. It's understandable for everybody. And then by going through that constraint, we will get to an outcome through our creativity. Mm. But sometimes it can happen that, you know, you didn't measure the or didn't portion or didn't measure, didn't set up the exercise correctly. And you don't get to the outcome because the constraint was not understood or it didn't lead to the right result that you wanted. Mm. And then what happens? I don't know what happens then because, you know, this is not a good place to be in. You will have to reassess. And that's when you can come in as a, as a savior. Yeah. 
rather than leaving a, a fruitless meeting, the outcome of which is that me giving these instructions to this sort of people to around this constraint today didn't work. Yeah. To, yeah, what is the outcome? It's too much divergence. So not bringing it back to the to convergence and to mm -hmm. alignment and ultimately a decision or an action. Mm -hmm. Or getting lost in tangents. Yeah. Yeah, when people are too much bogged down in thinking outside the box, because that's good. Creativity is welcome. But then if we are not keeping the focus and the attention of the group. So th this is why I'm uh, I'm thinking about, you know, holding space, mm -hmm. being able to hold the space and keeping the boundaries. So how, how can we create a box that we need to think outside of, but still keep the thinking outside the box in the boundaries of our, yeah. our goal? Or just making the box bigger <laughs> so that we can still stay inside the box. Exactly. But then how is the creative thinking outside the box come if we are yeah. always making the box big? You know, this is yeah. a, I can see a fractal unfolding here, a spiral, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. When I think of the boundaries that we need in order to be creative, I somehow always think of a um, street art tour that I took in, in London. And the tour guide pointed out at shrink gums on the on the pavement that an artist used at as canvas for their art because street mm -hmm. art was a uh, banned so it was illegal because you were not allowed to destroy the uh, property exactly so by drawing on a gum that was on a pavement it's not public property mm -hmm. and i think to find such a sweet spot of a very clear boundary and restriction that suddenly opens up creativity in a very out of the box way but you can you can see something very similar when you know let's say there are pipes coming out of the wall of the house mm -hmm. in london and then there is a street artist that will see an elephant's trunk in mm. that pipe and yes. then just throws an elephant around it. You know, these are the constraints that we as facilitators need to create. Yeah. And and figure out, okay, I'm giving you a pipe out of a house that is coming out of the house. What are you going to draw around it? Mm. Yes. And then, yeah, and then what makes a constraint a good constraint? This is a good constraint for me that you have just set up because it is challenging to answer there is not a simple answer to this so i will need to be, be you know digging deep into finding an answer to this and i have the time and the space to reflect on this and dig up something and and then bring it to the fore so i think it needs to be challenging it needs to be in you know the instruction needs to be simple mm -hmm. and I need the facilitator to hold the space for me to think. And I want the facilitator to think that I can do this. So challenging without being frustrating? That's what I hear? Yes. Because if you, cannot, if you don't think you can do it. You know, it's just one step out of my comfort zone or two. Mm -hmm. not, not wildly out there. And that's what, that's what teams want too, I guess. You know, 
don't give us the simple thing. Ask something that is difficult to answer. Trust us that if we dig deep using your tools, Mm -hmm. we can find that answer and bring it to the fore and let it shine and let it be the beautiful diamond that we will look at. And then we'll say, wow, we have unearthed this together here. Mm. Isn't that amazing that this is the outcome of our conversations today? True, because if we have constraints and we overcome them, it's deeply satisfying. You know, constraints are tapping into our internal motivations. You know, that thing that Simon Sinek was talking about, mastering purpose, autonomy, mastering purpose. Mm. Yeah. You know, that we are able to work autonomously. And I think the, the mastery element is that's, that's so important here. Because mastery is about figuring things out that you are good at. But the challenge that you have in front of you is exactly one or two steps beyond your skill level. And that's where you want to get to. Yeah. And the purpose comes in that uh, I think that's another element that makes a constraint a good constraint. It must be reasonable or meaningful. Mm -hmm. So not just a random constraint to challenge the group for the Mm -hmm. Just to challenge them, but in a meaningful way. Exactly. So that, so that, you know, we have an outcome and an outcome that is ours, Mm. that we are jointly responsible for, I guess. Yeah. Because we have created it. It has come from us. Yeah. And then how to do the next step. And maybe this links back to Scrum, where you said Scrum is is about delivery. And that's the biggest kind of misunderstanding that, oh, after a sprint, if you don't deliver, doesn't matter. Um, so you do have to deliver. And for that, you do need those who come to an agreement to buy in, to feel responsibility and accountability. How do you get there? Because very often, and I think that's that's a frustration of many workshop participants that a workshop feels like a party where the next day you have a hangover and nobody wants to clean up the mess. Um, <laughs> where did that come from, Miriam? <laughs> That's me. What did we say? Oh, yeah, that was fun. I don't remember. You said that a workshop is like a party when the next day, no, you know, which we really enjoy, but the next day nobody wants to clean up the mess. Yeah. Nobody wants to own the outcome of yeah. the party. The outcome of the party might have been good conversations, yeah? And building relationships and getting to a point that we will actually make when we get back to work or, you know, if it was a work-related party. Even if it was a personal one, it doesn't really matter. It is something that we want to do together in the yeah. future. But then who owns it? Yeah. And and, and where, where does that get picked up? This is where I think at work accountability bodies come in to 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 play you have mentioned that you know or an, a, a triangle of mm. a, a trio of accountability bodies i guess because it is easy to sway one person but it is mm-hmm. more difficult to sway to maybe that like throwing up something like this could be a could be a good way why does it work in scrum and doesn't work outside of scrum does it not work out first of all not everywhere in Scrum it, does it work, yeah? But I guess 
you know, at the at the end of a team improvement meeting, which is called the retrospective in Scrum, when we look at how we collaborated, how we worked together in the in the last sprint, uh, the outcome of that session should be clear improvement points for the team. Mm-hmm. And the last question of the Scrum master or the facilitator at that point should be, okay, who is going to own this? Who is going to take it forward? Because I think what helps in Scrum is that we have a very specific point in two weeks' time or in a week's time or in a month's time when we are going to check in on this. Mm-hmm. I think that's what, you know, that's what makes it a bit more sticky in Scrum than in other environments. That in two weeks' time or, you know, when the next sprint ends, we will have a similar meeting to this when I ask about the previous improvement points and how we did that or how we didn't do that. But I guess, you know, this is the, this is very similar in coaching as well. When you have a, a, a client and then the client subscribes to doing something to change something in their life and the next coaching session should begin, hopefully it does. Okay, you said that you wanted to do these things. Can we check in on them? What is coming up when I'm reading back to you this these improvement points yeah yeah so it's clear accountability and a name linked to an activity and also a a time when we Mm. check in on this again yeah i think that that is you know that's what makes it sticky in scrum because we will check in on this in two weeks time Mm. which brings it back to the is it the eisenhower matrix where the urgent and important it's nice if it's important that you have to do it, but if it's never urgent, you will never do it. So putting a and time there, it makes it creates urgency. It makes it urgent. It creates yeah. urgency. That's what that's what you know the sprints are about. The sprints are a fixed time box in yeah. order to create that urgency. Mm, to overcome Parkinson's law. <laughs> Everything will take as much time as you allocate to it. Yeah. yeah. What makes a workshop fail? I think not having the understanding of why it failed. Mm, it's such a scrum answer. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> uh, because, you know, if we don't get to an outcome, that, that is the outcome. You know, that with this group of people around this constraint, with this problem, using this facilitation technique today, in this weather, in this room, it didn't work. But then you change some of the parameters about about this workshop and you run it again with a different environment with different people and it works then mm. what were the things that made it work the second time and didn't make it work the first time because you know the problem with that is that too many mm. parameters have changed you have changed as a person your instructions might have changed because you thought that okay i didn't give clear enough instructions so i'm going to tweak my instructions mm. the people are different the people already know about this workshop that you're putting together so they will know that what thing to expect so too many variables too many parameters everything can change so again for for me i think a workshop fails if there is no convergence at the end mm-hmm. If we are still, because of the lack of time box or, you know, lack of time, we are still not in the, in the divergent mode. We are still in the grown zone Mm -hmm. in the middle when we are twisting and pulling and turning and churning and tugging the rope and, oh, that, that is, that is very frustrating for a facilitator because that's where the success, success or the failure of, of an outcome of the workshop. That's when it happens. 
that's where success or failure to reach the outcome will surface. And I think it's, yeah, it's a good point. I think it's even uh, frustrating for the participants. Of course. Because then it's this unsatisfaction of, okay, so now what? Exactly. I think we do need, yeah, the, this meaningful progress, a sense of meaningful progress to feel satisfied. At the same time, we need to leave people in the growth zone and be comfortable with the discomfort that it causes for a while. Mm. Because those are like the questions that a coach asks, to which the answer is a long silence, a long pause, Mm -hmm. the awkwardness, the discomfort. It's all there, sitting in the air, creating tension, creating friction. At the same time, hopefully somewhere deep down, it is unleashing creativity. It is unleashing the answer to the question of, okay, I hear that person's view. I hear that person's view. I have my own view. What is the common denominator based on which we can start alignment? But if we do not leave that grown zone open long enough and we try to make it easy for our Mm -hmm. participants, that creativity that started to take root will never flourish, will never, we didn't give it enough time to grow and manifest in an answer or, or in a solution or in a, mm-hmm. or in a half-baked sentence even, because we do not want a fully formed sentence to come out of your mouth. We just want the beginning of a sentence to come out so that others can jump in on it and others can save you, just like in improv, which is... Another great tool in, in, in the facilitator's toolkit. Yes, fascinating. What resonates with me, what comes up is one, this, how can we end a workshop or a session that leaves participants on the one hand with the satisfaction of having converged and still the sense of wonder to continue to be curious, like the coach, as you, as you mentioned. Exactly. Yeah, that's again, the same thing that came up in me is like, I think if people feel satisfied with the outcome and they want more of this, mm-hmm. that's when you have won a crowd for yourself. That's when your respect as a facilitator has just increased. It's basically where the outcome is just the jumping block for the next big piece and like oh this we have and now you can see the the next stage already or something became something became visible approachable that wasn't there before exactly and and something that unleashes the potential of what's possible okay we have gotten to this point Oh my God, what comes next? Yeah. What, what, what are we going to do after this? I, 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 feel, I want to have the people leave energized mm-hmm. after a workshop and even on the hangover day, feel <laughs> energized about it. Yeah. To come back to your previous example of a party. And I think curious enough, curious about each other. So having, um, having had access to new minds, new ideas, new perspectives and thinking, oh, I now see something that I haven't seen before and what else can become possible through that, which then you mentioned timing and one of the big mysteries, maybe, maybe no longer mystery is timing of workshop 
And this, how long can we keep this kind of discomfort of grown zone? And maybe to make the question more tangible is the timing of breakout rooms. Because I think that's the micro application where you want groups to have enough time to discuss about a question or to follow the instructions to come up with something meaningful, but not too much time so that they lose the curiosity and the interest. And they lose the focus. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. How do you determine time for workshops or breakout rooms? It depends on this, on the size of the task on hand. What I like to do is, you know, in order to stay focused, I would rather break down a big exercise to smaller chunks of, let's say, three or five or seven minutes, and then ask the participants to come back and then give them another instruction and then ask them to go away rather than, okay, see you back in 20 minutes mm. or see you back in half an hour. I would rather break it down to smaller, more manageable chunks. This is maybe with a group that I do not know that well. If I know that the participants can stay focused for half an hour, then of, of course it's there is no need. But even then, you know, I love the 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 tool in Zoom through which you can just communicate into breakout rooms, mm -hmm. and you can do that in a written form. You know, just just maybe maybe you should think about rounding off this first phase of the exercise now, yeah. and you should start the second phase. But, you know, I think that's for a bit more mature group of people who have who have a history of working together and who know me and I know them and I know that they can do this. If it's a new group, I would give them short bursts of time boxes rather than one longer. Yeah. Also to make sure that they're not running off on a tangent. Mm -hmm. I'm and getting distracted. Will, you know, yeah. And this might be... will give me mm -hmm. the focus to bring yeah. them back. Yeah. Good one. And it might be a difference between the on-site and online. I think on-site, yes, we can sit for 15, 20 minutes to be very focused on a task. But online, um, it's, it's a bit more difficult. Yeah. I'm really grateful that, you know, in-life workshops are coming back. Are you? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just can't wait mm. to see people because, you know, that just gives me the energy when I see sparkly eyes. You know, when we manage to to unearth that gem at the end, mm -hmm. I think it's more visible in the real life environment than virtually. We can have the satisfaction virtually as well, but, you know, nothing can replace in face, I guess. I wonder whether this is true and where this feeling comes from, because I think we can have the same kind of feeling and glow and excitement and sparkling eyes online. You can. What is missing, though, is the closing. So what happens after the closing? And I think that's the magic moment that we then remember that, okay, so the official part is over and now we can go off and have a drink together or we can have the kind of more informal chit chat and start the giggling because everyone is a little bit tired and mm -hmm. everyone puts down the mask of the professional workshop and suddenly we are we. Mm -hmm. as human as we can be. And these are the memories that stick. 
And I don't think that this has necessarily something to do with online or offline, but just with the timing that online, suddenly it's finished. Yeah, and it's done. yeah, exactly that. At the same time, we can be effective and efficient and successful in an online environment. But somehow for me, and we can have the warmth, but it's like watching artificial fire. Yeah, some, it, it, sometimes people have that, uh, you know, in their houses, there is this artificial... The screen playing log, the fireplace. Log-burning fireplace, but it's, it's, it's just, uh, you know, like twinkling light. And I, and I feel that nothing, nothing replaces a campfire, for example. And the reason why I feel that way is because virtual came in. Virtual workshops came in when? Yeah, they were around before COVID, but they weren't around 20 years ago. Yeah. While sitting around a fire and talking about stuff that matters that has been around for hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands, year, for, for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. And, 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 you know, nothing in my book, nothing will replace that because it's just virtual. The other workshops, yes, they can be effective. They can reach their outcome. And yes, they can have the warmth as well. But still, come on, there must be a difference. And I'm playing a lot with that. So um, I recently hosted a workshop and I will host it again, Falling in Love on Zoom. Mm -hmm. So how can we how can we help participants to fall in love with each other um, in a Zoom call? Mm -hmm. And... Um, just last week, we finished the third edition of the Never Done Before Festival. And there we created this space, this liminal space that after a workshop is over, we still have an online environment where we can meet to debrief so that you don't have this harsh end. And I think it did create this glow where you bump into someone where you can continue and expand the conversation beyond the official end. And we even had a dance and a party together and went silly, although we cannot really hug each other. And this is not to say that I don't appreciate on site and in real life and hugging and touching and sharing a drink or food. Mm -hmm. Instead, I try to figure out what it really is that makes the mm -hmm. difference. And I think it's, yeah, the liminal, mm -hmm. the harsh end that we can expand the ending and making more fluid. For me, for me, physical presence is also energizing. Physically having people in the room, they, they, they do not just bring their body into the room. They have a shine and sparkle around them. And then, and then there is the way they walk, the way they show up. It's very different in a virtual environment. And, and therefore, I just find it important to meet with my colleagues so that when I see them on Zoom, I can understand, I can figure out how they show up or I can figure out their energy because I have seen them in real life. Mm. Yeah. For me, that's important. Yeah, to build rapport and trust. It's, it's not impossible. It's not impossible. Mm. You know, during, during COVID, I started working for a new organization and, and I worked there for 18, no, two years. And there were colleagues that I have never seen. And we have built a good relationship and we could work together. But I'm just thinking how much easier it would have been if we went to pick up our uh, lunch after one of our workshops or whatever. How much easier it would have been. 
And I think especially for, for conflictual situations, I think the hunky glory, the, the good, the easy, the happy can be online. Having difficult conversations online, clarifying conflict is more difficult. They are sitting in the same the space. It makes the room very cold. Yeah. It make, it can yeah. make the room very cold. Yeah. And, and you can see it on the faces. People yeah. tense up and yeah. Zoom freezes, but not because of an application problem, yeah. not because yeah. of Zoom's yeah. quality, but, yeah. you know, because people freeze on the call. Yeah, I think the freeze or, um, or fly mode are enhanced on Zoom. Offline, maybe it's more the fight, but then at least you have energy or something to work with. Wow, we've come a long way. We have come a long way indeed. We almost talked for one and a half hours. Yes. <laughs> I wonder how much you will be able to use in the podcast. Oh, I use it all. So that's <laughs> the benefit of having an external editor. A uh, little anecdote. The first 25 episodes I edited myself. And I was very critical and edited myself out a lot. Mm. And then realized later, oh, maybe I said something that we referred to afterwards. I had to edit my back, myself back in. So it was always kind of complicated. And now I have Gordon who does that and he would not edit me out. And he would not think, oh, this isn't relevant. Let's cut that out. And it actually makes the conversation so much richer and so much easier to follow. Okay. And then it's just a conversation. So it's part of it. It's good to know. Also, I think for the audience, you're not on and sitting there and taking notes every single minute of a conversation. It's rather mm. maybe they're taking us on a walk. Maybe uh, they're taking us in the gym or cleaning the dishes. So I do that all the time. Right? So you don't so want to have such a density of information but you want to have it like a conversation and then something stands out and then you grab a piece of paper and you take a note. I think what, what happened in, in my life, I, I just remember my parents always listening to the radio. Mm -hmm. and, and that was their sort of background stuff. Sometimes it's the news, sometimes it's a tune, then it's, you know, a, a cultural program, something. And for me, it's podcasts. Mm -hmm. I listen to podcasts about anything. But, but, you know, sometimes, yeah, it sparks my curiosity, write a couple of thoughts down and then put it, put it next to the others, the other half written sheets. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I think the even parts of the conversation, if they are not as rich in content, mm. we don't know what it sparks in someone, maybe a memory, maybe they, it makes it relatable. So, yeah, I like the pure, the unedited, the long form. Okay, I, I wonder how it will go down with the audience. Yeah, we'll find because, out. Because I have waffled quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by that? I was reflecting on simplicity a lot, and mm -hmm. I didn't really express myself in a simple way. I was expressing the need for using a corpus of words, of 800 words, you know, the basic corpus of, of, of the English language, and I didn't do that. So I'm advocating stuff that I'm not really practicing in this environment. But hey, hey, maybe I can get away with it now. And it is a different environment. Of course it is. And I think you seem to be a speak-to-thinker. And so am I. So I make sense of information by speaking about it, especially yes. in a conversation. Whereas when I prepare a workshop or when I'm in charge of holding space for a group, I would be more careful 
of the words that I'm choosing. So suddenly then my communication style might change. And hopefully you have made up your mind about at least the core instructions beforehand so that you can communicate exactly. them in a simple way. Exactly. But this one today was unscripted and improvisational. That's why I sent you questions that I didn't ask so that you can blubber a bit and speak yeah, to things. Yeah, I did, I did blubber a bit and that was, it was very refreshing Enjoyable. to blubber about this. Yeah. yeah, good. Really enjoyed my time here. Is there anything that you wanted to share but we didn't touch upon? Oh, there are many things. <laughs> we hardly talked about storytelling, you know. But there will be a next time, hopefully. There might be a next time. I don't know how, yeah. how you are running this, but I would be happy to explore that topic as well. Thank you, Kava. Thank you for holding the space for my waffling. I hope it's useful for somebody. Loved it. It was definitely useful for me. Yeah, I'm taking three things away from this at least. <laughs> Wonderful. And I was, I'm happy that I could give you something apart from a conversation. Yes, yes. I came here with very little confidence in bringing value because I do not consider myself a particularly good facilitator. I have self-confidence issues, yeah? So that hopefully this will be edited out of the podcast. Please do not record this. Can you please turn the recording off? <laughs> <laughs> or this could actually turn into an entire different episode of the self-confidence of facilitators mm. and humility because I invited you on the show because you were recommended by someone on LinkedIn yeah. to be yes. a guest. So apparently the inside and the outside view of your facilitation skills. Of course, there must be a match. massive conflict. Of course, mm -hmm. of course. And that's fine. I'm happy to sit on my fence. <laughs> I'm happy, happy to be saying that I'm not conf not a good facilitator. I will say that because I, I don't think I am. Or, you know, it's just that I have high expectations about myself. That's the other thing that, that can happen. And that's what I often find myself in is that, you know, uh, others are writing LinkedIn posts that I could be writing and I do not want to write them because I don't feel that my thoughts are worthy enough. Mm. But when I read it from others, I dismiss them because I say, I could have written that. There's nothing new in <laughs> Interesting. that. Interesting, yeah. I, I, I really hate that. I really hate that about myself. But hey, I'm here to improve. And I'm, I'm here to deal with that after all those years. Yeah, I'm opening this up as a massive vulnerability here. But hey, I will do it. You know, I like to be creative. I'm, I love music and I love creating music. And I love writing uh, lyrics or poems or poetry and i used to love that when i was a teenager as well and whenever i i i wrote down something or whenever i created something i felt this is oh when i was playing it again on the guitar no 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 it, it sounds like guns and roses meets this and that means that and meets pink floyd a bit it's not original so i just shelved it i just put it in the drawer And that's what I do because it's not original. It's a knockoff of something that I have heard. It's a copy of a copy of a copy. Which makes it but original. Hey, which makes it, this is your interpretation, but my interpretation in my, in my late teens wasn't that. It was just, I'm not able to produce something genuine and something original. That's why I just never created anything genuine and original. Because, but now at the age of 44, It's time to time to get away for, from that kid. 
Yes. Now I now I just put out stuff that I feel is good enough, and I don't do not care. Yeah. You know the you know the main question about here is what would you do if you didn't care about the people that are observing your work? Mm. That's that's what I learned at the age of forty four. The value Beautiful. of that. I wish I had known that at the age of eighteen. Yeah. All these songs that they've never been listened to. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, we are all standing on shoulders of giants. And creativity is just connecting old ideas in a new way, right? And now I'm learning that it is my way. Yeah. yeah that it's, it's so amazing that we are using the same tools as facilitators, yeah? We are using liberating structures. We are using whatever we are learning from other facilitators but somehow what makes it genuine and original is that how we interpret it how we phrase our instruct how we phrase our invitations how we phrase our instructions that's what makes them genuine yes we are using the same guitar we are using the same words we are using the same pens and papers we are yeah. using the same strings we are using the same amplifiers we are using the same knobs on those amplifiers so why are we expecting that something Original, original will come out. And still it is original. Because is we bring original, yeah. Because we bring our energy, our twist, our stories, our baggage, our experiences to the mm -hmm. space. And each story resonates in a different way with the audience, right? I find it fascinating mm -hmm. when you ask different people in an audience to summarize what they've heard in a story. You hear very different things. And they might have nothing to do with each other. And I think mm -hmm. that's also something that we underestimate as facilitators, that we don't know what will resonate with the group and what they will take away. And that's not our responsibility. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's also a gift, mm -hmm. just like the curiosity. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that. I really want to appreciate because um, it is a big topic of the confidence of Are we good enough? Are we original enough? Especially coming back to what you said earlier, the topic of ego. Mm -hmm. If we really want to be really good facilitators, it's not about us, it's about the group. And we have to put our ego aside. This means that we will be unnoticed at the end. So how can you grow your confidence is... But, but, but yes, we are unseen by the end, and that's cool. Yes. Because our result will be the part that we have played in yes. getting to that outcome. So, you know, it will, that will definitely boost my ego that I have created an environment where these people today using these tools could get to the outcome. But I... And that's important. That will definitely fuel my ego because I helped them get there. Mm. It's not about me directly, but yes, it is about me indirectly. And yeah. that will be enough yeah. for now. Yeah. And if you can see it, and I think very often, especially when we are external facilitators, we don't see the fruits of our work. Mm -hmm. And hence, it's yeah. difficult to, to build this confidence. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I'm sure it resonates with many in the audience. Okay. Thank you very much for this beautiful conversation today. I, I just didn't realize how much time flew when we were mm. having fun. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Gabo. Thank you very much. Thank you for staying tuned and for listening to the show. I know how busy you are and I appreciate that you're sharing your two most 
valuable resources with me and my guest, your time and your attention. If you're looking for more conversation with other facilitators and for a community of practice, why don't you join Never Done Before, the community that I have built and many of my podcast guests are already members. Visit neverdonebefore.org and I wish to see you there. Thank <laughs> you.